I had seen a little documentary about the life of Tolstoy, and mm -hmm. I had to jump over a couple of pieces where I thought, I don't want to know the story and ending of these books. I want to read them. Right. <laughs> I don't want to yeah. get this in this documentary. But one thing that apparently Tolstoy believed in is that novels, they are not for entertainment, but they are the best vehicle to teach us about life and other people and help us understand how even the most foreign persons to us, what their internal world looks like, why they do what they do, what their inner struggles are, and hence help us understand each other better and therefore make us less strangers. So something along those, those lines. I'm paraphrasing. Which makes perfect sense. When you read, reading, reading, yeah, when right? you read so, Anna Karenina and you hear this little bit, you go, yeah, that makes perfect sense. Yeah. Perfect. Yeah. Because he does in incredible detail and in human beauty share a light of the inner worlds of people that are so often so drastically different from the outer worlds or outer appearances. Yeah. Um, yeah. And there's like these characters in there too. It's like when I read it, I'm like very judgmental toward these people, uh, you know, and then I read further and I'm like, ah, ah, that's yeah. why I see <laughs> Yeah, they actually, I get it, I get it, okay. And then, and then there's, there's moments, like one character that I have loved is Stepan Arkadic in Anna Karenina. Because he's such a carefree, happy-go-lucky, I will just arrange my life in ways that give me pleasure. And no matter how much you want to point me to all the things I do wrong, I look at them and I honestly just shoulder shrug and go, ah, you know, life, who's perfect, what's perfect, let's just have a good time. You know, it's just, he is so, you know, he seems so um, unburdened by a conscious or morality or what other people would think. He's in such good spirits and just in some ways he reminds me of Zorba the Greek because he's mm -hmm. just attacking life, you know, with open arms, just wants all of it. He just wants to live as much life as humanly possible. He's a very lively character, very alive human. In other ways, because he's not the highlight of the book, you don't get the depth that Zorba has, right? And kind of seeing a man that has fought many wars and has seen so much life and life and death and murder and tragedy and, and comedy and everything. Like Zorba is encompassing all of humanity both the comedy and the tragedy of it and therefore he loves life so much because he's lived so much life you don't get that with Stepan Arkadich where he seems to have been placed in a lucky position in society you know had a lucky lottery ticket in life is oh just smooth smooth sailing. sailing but he is aware of it and he is unwilling yeah to make his life harder than he has to. Like, there's other people that mm -hmm. are just as lucky, maybe, but their internal conflicts make their life a bit tougher, right? Their doubts, their fears, their this, their that. And he sees all that. He's aware of all of it, and he goes, why should I, why should I punish myself or burden myself in ways I don't have to? I, you know, life is whatever it is. I'm in this lucky seat. I'm going to enjoy the fuck out of it. <laughs> you know, I'm not going to apologize mm -hmm. for any of it. So even a character like that, that is presented in 
you know, it's kind of the, the that, that is an archetype, right? The charming, what is, what would we call it? The, the charming bad guy. It's not even a bad guy. It's like the charming selfish person, right? Um, in movies, in so many um, stories, we see a character that's a bit too selfish, that is not really acting, that is acting in ways that if they acted in those ways towards us in real life, we would be hating that person or be really upset at them. But because it's in this story removed from us and because they do it with a smile and a wink, and a ch there's something charming about it. There's something enchanting about it. Maybe it's the fantasy that maybe I could, like, maybe it's the pleasure we get from imagining, maybe it's me, but I, it, that's a character that's been in so many movies and so many stories that it must be a universal thing where we mm -hmm. imagine or we live vicariously through them in the story, right? We're, we're mm -hmm. imagining how great it must, must feel to be that person, right? And to just wink through life yeah. and just do the things that you like. And there's a, there's a hedonistic pleasure in being selfish in ways that it's hard to enjoy when you have morale, right? When you have a conscience. It's really hard to fully enjoy being completely selfish. But then seeing it in a character that has charm, right? That has wit, that winks at us as an audience and says, I know what you think of me and I see it too, but you know, whatever, life is life. Like when somebody has the self-awareness and the, the humor and the hubris to be that way, there's something that we love in those characters, although in real life we know we would hate them, right? Maybe similarly yeah, as right. the hero that goes and kills every single person that had anything to do with the, with the wrong that happened to him. And like in real life, we wouldn't want anybody that thinks something bad happened to them to take a machine gun and just kill, you know, hundreds of people along the way to justice. But in a movie, there's a satisfaction in that revenge, that kind of, you know, unstopped, violent revenge, right? There's something that... We, <laughs> There's a, a pleasure in living vicariously through that because we won't ever do it in, in real life. And we wouldn't find pleasure seeing it in real life necessarily. So Stepan Arkadyevich is that kind of a character. And throughout the entire book, as he appears, I would always get special pleasure from his selfishness, you know. Yeah. Um, I loved I loved that scene in the in the where he talks with Levin. Just in the situation where early on in the book they are they like Levin and Vronsky. They both are kind of like haven't put their cards on the table yet, but both are interested in in Kitty, right? And then he meets with Levin, and then he's like, "Oh yeah, what do you do? let's catch up." And yeah, I know what what's what's on your mind and in your heart. Come on, let's talk about it, right. And then he talks about him and he tells him and he advises him and he encourages him to to talk with Kitty, right, and, 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 and gives her, like, advice how to do it right, how to propose and all of that, right? And then, and it, it's so heartfelt. He really wants, and he, he tells her, I believe you are the right for yeah. her, right? And then, like, the same, I don't know, the next day or something <laughs> like this, he meets with, uh, with uh, Vronsky, and he has the same conversation. You're the right guy for her, you know? You should do this, you should do that. But it's, in both cases, in that moment, it's, like, heartfelt. Yes. He's just like, so, oh, this is a good man. She is a beautiful woman. They should be together, yes. right? But he doesn't connect. <laughs> so, that, that he has written that character so great because typically you would judge him for it. But because Tolstoy writes him in a way where in that moment, he felt it when he was telling it to 
uh, Levin. Yeah. But as he's now seeing yeah. Bronski, who's also a good man and has good qualities and he really likes, right, he's right, like, exactly. in that moment, he <laughs> loves Bronski and wants to help him, you know? Yeah. And so he's able yeah. to love both of these men that in this situation were, uh, you know, competitors without any... Mm -hmm internal doubt or conflict because it's just in the moment he's jolly go lucky and he loves people in life and he just in that moment you are a great guy you know here's what i would do if i were you to get her you know and he tells him what he told yeah, yeah. even i think levin and how to like this is what levin is gonna do yeah. and so you should play it yeah and it's such a fine difference between somebody that plays people right to make them like him or the mm -hmm. way that Stepan Arkadyevich is written as a character. He gives those people advice heartfelt, right? He is yeah. he, in that moment. Yeah. He loves them and he's so free of what did I do yesterday and is this good and should I do this and should I do that? Right. It, he's just in the moment what is feels right and feels good. Let me help this friend, you know? And so yeah. the the motivation why makes such a big difference. You know, reading Tulsa, I don't know um, – I don't know why that question came up. Oh, I know why. Yesterday, as I was reading, I'm now, you know, I think 80% through the books. I'm in the final inning of the book. And yesterday, I was thinking about the character of Levin, right? Where Levin, the way he writes him throughout the book, is one of the best humans in the story in terms of just what we would you know how we would judge somebody on ethics and character like who here tries his hardest to be a good person levin would be probably number one not always in succeeding but in trying to be a good person right he seems to be trying the most and then i was thinking but also levin is if you asked who is one of the most tormented characters throughout the entire book. Now, maybe yeah. at the end, yeah. Anna and Vronsky are going to be more tormented than anybody else. But throughout the entire book, most tormented person, for sure, Levin. From mm -hmm. the first page mm -hmm. to the last, he's always in some kind of an inner conflict, doubt, something stresses him. Yeah. He's not sure. Yeah. There's always something going on. And I was. Yeah. I love that scene also where he comes back to his estate in the countryside, right? After the thing with Kitty didn't work out and everything, and he saw his brother who's like in this destitute situation, and then he's going back and he said, Oh, I, I shall change myself. I will work harder yeah. and live more humble, and I will not be carried away by some wild passion. And, you know, and then he's arriving in his home, and there's like all the, the things that he, you know, has to take care of, and he's already realizing, like, ah. It's not going to be that easy to do all this change. And then he's already slowly morphing into falling back into the old patterns, but also blaming himself for it. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. He, he's, <laughs> he is like the prototypical tormented human, you know. And then yeah, so yeah. many times throughout the story, he changes his mind, right? Or he mm -hmm. goes like one direction. Oh, I'm going to mm -hmm. do this now. And then he finds some pleasure and elation in now I have this. I have found the answer, the simple, this is going to be my yeah. path. Ah, there's yeah. relief, unburdening. This is going to be my path. And then something happens. It's like goes yeah. off the path and he realizes, no, that was not my path. And he's again like, which path mm -hmm. should I take? Is it this? Is it? And then he finds another thing and goes, okay, now I got it. This is my path. I'm happy now. This is good. 
you know, and then he goes goes off track again. Um, yeah, there's so, so there's such depth to that character. But yesterday, I was thinking at one point, it's interesting how we how much intent and I don't know if I would say in a struggle, but. So so here's here's the the thought that I had yesterday. If you took two characters, two people, and one one of them or both of them did the exact same amount of bad deeds, right? Let's say both of them were robbing banks and they were doing it in the exact same way. And you wrote that one of them was completely at peace at being a robber and stealing from people and making little children afraid when they see him with a gun and all that. He was just not caring about anybody and was just purely selfish. And you made the other character in internal conflict, always wanting to stop robbing banks, feeling terrible when he saw the child being afraid of him, just... It always in and then at moments thinking no I have to rob banks and then doing it and then doing it for maybe good reasons because he wants to help his mother who's sick or there's there's this, all these conflict there's all this quote unquote goodness or ethics inside of him but if you just looked at their actions it would be indistinguishable they all just woke up in the morning would go grab their gun rob a bank leave and do whatever with the money if, if the actions were exactly the same but one person had internal turmoil, we would all say the person with the internal turmoil is the better human. Right? Yeah. We would say this person is better in some ethical, religious, whatever, spiritual way. This is a be- If I had to choose who is a better person, that person. <laughs> and I was thinking, why is that? Right? Because uh, on the one hand, just purely on actions... Maybe, you know, one could make the argument, the person that didn't know better, that did not have the inner voice or the ethics to stop or slow them down, is a better person. Because that person was acting in accordance with their thoughts. And the person that knew better and was struggling in, in conflict was constantly losing the inner battle and going over to the, whatever, bad side or, or doing these terrible things, although they knew better. But... I think when we, when we, when we know that someone has, you know, has inner conflict that is driving him or her to try to become better, that points to a possible redemption, right? A possible turnaround, a possible transformation. This person might become a better person, or at least this person is being punished internally. As they're acting in these wrong ways, they're not having evil satisfaction of being internally at peace and in harmony with their selfishness. But it's interesting, right? Because this is purely, these are philosophical, emotional ways of judging, right? It's not rational because an action is an action is an action, right? right? But And at the same time, like, I think why we would judge the conflicted person as being like a better character, right? The other one would probably be more popular, right? Because there's less conflict. So it's more enjoyable to to follow and be around that person. 
Yeah, you know, clarity is so incredibly attractive. That's why con men are so so good. Still blows my mind that con men didn't mean convict men, but meant confidence men. But con men are so attractive and successful because they have confidence, which is something everybody's lacking. Nobody Mm. enjoys being around people that are overly conflicted within themselves. Right? We might love these people, but it's not enjoyable being around them. And we don't want to be them. Yeah. But when you yeah. meet somebody that yeah. seems to have it all, that seems to know it all, that seems to be in, in at inner peace and have found knowledge that they completely are confident in, we're like, how the fuck did this person get that? I want some of that. I want some of that yeah. confidence, yeah. clarity, and calm. So, yeah. It's also, you know, and then oh, go ahead. Uh, yeah, on on the other end of the spectrum, I feel like what you mentioned is like the most inner conflicted person, at least until where I have read so far. I'm just like at the beginning of part two. Um, is is to me the brother of Levian? What's his name? Nikolai. Nikolai. Oh, yeah, Levin? yeah, yeah. Where, where he is so like against the capitalist and the ruling class, and he wants to help the poor and suppressed people, right? But then there's like someone serving him food, and he's shouting angrily at that guy, mm-hmm. and he's eating his food, drinking his wine greedy like more, with more he has more greed in in like this little thing than like a capitalist in exploiting the working class right and there's he doesn't even see that consciously but there's so much conflict just in that short chapter where he describes this where it's like oh my god this is both painful and delicious to to observe yeah <laughs> that that is also an interesting character uh, levin's brother yeah and so repelling right like you 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 can sense like oh, i don't want to stay in this room with this guy anymore right it's through, like, through the eyes well. of levin later in the story you can uh-huh. sense that his brother was incredibly sweet boy and mm-hmm. maybe like at, at one point levin says he, he was not you know he was not made for this world or something along those lines and you yeah. can tell this is the sometimes the type of person that might have been too sensitive for life and, yeah, you yeah. know, when you are too sensitive for life, you can turn one way or the other. Either you get overly aggressive, right? And just everything is a fight. Everything is a th- – because everything is a threat when you are so hypersensitive. Yeah. You either fight everything and everybody is evil or you retreat from everything and go completely numb. Don't see, don't feel, yeah. don't care. Uh, and his brother went to this hyper-aroused – fighting everything, everybody's evil, everything is, mm. he's wronged. Everything that happens in the world is a personal wrong towards him. So he's uh, so tormented right. and, and angry. And he even says it like, he recalls like, yeah, I can see why these other people in my circle think so lowly of him, right? Because they see him drunken and angry shouting in this, you know, dirty clothes. And then, but I know my brother's pure soul, mm-hmm. right? I understand mm-hmm. him deep. And it's like, you see like how different the outer and inner world of, of yeah. him is. And later in the book, I don't want to spoil it for you, but yeah, please do. The, to me, the most touching moment in that entire book is a interaction between Levin and his brother much later in the book. And it's incredible. Mm. And the way that Tolstoy write is, writes it is so incredibly powerful and also rings so true. Like in a lot of, moments in the book but this was one that stood out to me particularly i have seen this is not a big secret like his brother becomes ill right that's not a big spoiler Mm -hmm. i have seen people 
in my family, my grandmother and my grandfather, I mean, my, my, I had a bunch of people die and get sick in my family, but I had two people that were really, really sick and old and were living with us for their final years as their health was yep. deteriorating more and more. And so I've seen people when they're terminally ill and they live with you, they sleep with you, and they become little babies again and how you have to take care and how they react and how they are. And was reading that part of the, of the story, it was written so truthfully in terms of like me recognizing what I had experienced that I thought, all right, Tolstoy must have lived through this, right? To be able to write this so well, you can't just imagine, mm -hmm. certain things you cannot just imagine. You have to have mm -hmm. lived to be able to tell a story like this, this accurately. And in many places in the book, this is why I think I'm, this is one of my fascinations with people that are incredible writers, is that, when they, by writing these characters so with such truthful, alive power, when they're able to really bring these characters to life fully and full dimensionally in these situations, it makes me think this is some, this, these writers understood life at a much deeper level than most other people because you cannot write this well without understanding the person this well. And now it's one thing to understand one kind of person or yourself really well. It's another thing if you can write a, an epic story that involves so many different characters, that in, involves so many different things from people arguing politics over war, over conflict, infidelity, sexual tension, you know, childbirth, the, the, the pain of a mother. Like being able to come alive and write like a mother who's felt the pain of losing children or write like, you know, like, like write like all these people, you have to have understood life at a much deeper, much more meaningful level than most others, right? And it's one thing yeah. to sit there and talk about and say, this is the problem of women and this is the problem of men and this is, the, this is how life works to philosophize in some like theoretical way. It's another to write thousands and thousands of words that bring all of human yeah. life create to, to, to yes. create a whole fucking lifetime that is as real as if these people have lived and then a hundred years later people in a completely different cultural context read this and are like oh my god oh my god yeah. yeah i know you know who this this reminds me yeah. of and you know i'm the, oh i've been there I've it's amazing yeah you like you to me these writers stand way above the philosophers of their time, right? Or whoever, in terms of just purely who has dug the deepest in the soil of life, human life, the human soul, right? Who has gone the deepest in digging to try to understand the human soul and what human life is all about, it, the people that were able to write stories that hundreds and hundreds of years later touch people all around the world because it's so there's so much truth in it and there's truth in it in such depth and breadth that you recognize it. And we talked about this before where you read something that you felt a hundred times before and you've never had anyone 
including yourself being able to express it so closely to the true experience. Use yeah. words in such magical formula that you're like, wow, this is hitting the feeling and experience exactly to the tone. And everything, I didn't know this, but everything before then, when I was trying to explain or heard stories about a similar situation, was all much further away from how that situation felt, right? Oh, it makes you realize yeah, a truth yeah. that you never thought about, but then like dominoes falling, you realize, wow, I've had, I felt this a thousand times in my life, but I never, <laughs> I was never present for it. I never realized that I've yeah. gone through this emotion yeah. myself. Um, yeah. That's so powerful. I love that so much uh, about the great yeah. writers. Uh, and that's part of why I love reading Tolstoy. The, what I wanted to say originally was even with Stepan Arkadyevich, right? Who's like such a jolly, it's a, it's a way more one dimensional character comparing him to a bunch of others in the book. But even him that I loved to love in the book, right? That I'd love to love for all his flaws in the book. There's one moment um, much later in the book where for the first time, not for the first time, but for, Maybe in a in a rare, in a more rare occasion, Tolstoy goes into a lot more detail of Dolly's, who is Stepan Arkadyevich's wife, her thinking, her thinking through her life, her life situation, you know, further into the book. And for the first time, as I was reading her, right, like her, how she sees life, the struggles, the pain, the this, the that, and the kind of spot that Stepan Arkadyevich has put her in. As I was reading that, and it was contrasting even much harder with somebody else's relationship, where the person was treating his wife completely differently. It was the first time that as I was reading that, those pages, I was losing the joy for how much I love Stepan Akarich. You know? It was like, uh. Uh, you know... <laughs> <laughs> but then you know you keep reading and it comes up again. You know, you're like ah whatever. Right. But that, and even right. that I enjoyed. I loved yeah. that although yeah. I've been you know vicariously loving this you know not perfect human throughout the book. I'm reading this thing about his wife now and I go ah yeah he is a piece of shit. You know this <laughs> is he mm -hmm. is truly a piece of shit. And then, you know, you keep on reading, you're like, ah, oh, but he's such a nice guy and he doesn't know any better. <laughs> like, you don't care anymore. <laughs> that is another thing that I think for a long time now I've started to admire. And I was never, I, I've only come aware of this as I've started reading the great literature and the, the, the kind of great novels um, that I love people and I admire writers who are able to write multi-dimensional characters, right? This is something I've always loved in people. I think it took me a while to re realize it and say, I like people that are multi-dimensional, that are not one-dimensional. I like people that are conflicting in some ways. Like I like somebody that is a hyper-capitalist, but is also, you know, somebody that is uh, super sensitive and a sweetheart and artistic and listens to music and has to cry. Like somebody that's like a hardest in one area and super soft in another area. And somebody that's not as easy to figure out. Like to me, those people are richer in terms of the amount of life they represent and how they enrich life for all of us. But I never realized how much I admired 
being able to storytell this way. And I think it's because that is the, you know, writing a story where this is the bad guy and the bad guy is bad. Right. And this is the good guy, like Mar a Marvel fucking yeah. Marvel comic, right? Or at least yeah. Marvel yeah. movies. I don't know about the comics. I haven't read the comics. But Marvel movies are the most one-dimensional bullshit ever. Always the good guys are really, really good and the bad guys are really, really bad. The end, right? More or less. Mm -hmm. Now, of course, there's exceptions right. to this, but if you, especially the big blockbuster movies, where the hero is just such a sweet guy, like a Captain America movie, right? Captain America is so right. annoyingly good as a character. There's no right. edge to right. him. There's nothing. There's no... Con At least like a Spider-Man, it's funny because he's a teenager and he has some internal conflict about being a superhero and the people yeah. he puts in danger and all that. This, when there's no conflict within the hero and when there's no conflict within the villain, it's just so false that I can't be sucked into this. I cannot lose myself in the story. I At all times, I'm aware I'm watching a bullshit movie, right? And so I cannot enjoy it. And the more multifaceted somebody is able to write people, the more alive they become because I honestly believe that this is life. Like, nobody is just bad or good, right? Yeah. Fucking Hitler was great to his dogs. I was telling this to a friend that's like a, a dog lover, and mm -hmm. she couldn't believe it. <laughs> she loves dogs so she much, did. and she's so... Yeah indoctrinating yeah, the belief yeah. that if you love animals, you must be a good person. That yeah. she was like, no, this is not really. I love that. And, and in her mind, that. she was trying to make this thing about like, well, yeah, well, what kind of dogs? Because she wanted to think of yeah, like, probably only the purebred German. Yeah, and also maybe the aggressive dogs, you know, like the, the, the breed, yeah. like yeah, really yeah, aggressive, yeah. strong dog. Uh, maybe that would go with a Hitler. And it's like, and he was like super sweet. He loved animals so much. He didn't eat meat. Like he, he was a, a, yeah. a vegetarian and he was a painter and an artist. And he loved, he loved a jaw. Yeah. yeah. So, and he loved nature. Like he loved many things that really yeah. nice people love and would think that if somebody yeah. loves nature and cares about nature, loves animals and cares about animals and loves art, music, painting, mm -hmm. how could that person be a bad person? Mm -hmm. Right. And so to his dogs, Hitler was probably an amazingly nice energy in human or whatever. Right. Um, to not just to his dogs, like, all of us, as we as we live, to somebody we're a tyrant, to somebody we're a savior, right? We're not one thing to everybody, and to ourselves as well. When we just, if we're just honest with how many inner battles and fights we have, well, who's battling and fighting? If we're just one thing, if we're just like on one side of the table. Why? Where's the conflict coming from? It's because we're not one thing, and at different times, different parts of us take over and and act. And also, it's not just us; it's other people as well. You could be a per or have perfectly nice intentions, and somebody that is in a situation like uh, like uh, Levin's brother, who's so oversensitive and has been, you know, in his growing up, has felt so much attack and danger that he's gotten so angry with life that everything and everybody's at fault and attacking him and bad and evil you meet a person like that no matter what you do 
they will find a way to mistrust you to or to attach evil intentions behind your actions. And in their eyes, you're going to be a bad person. There's nothing you can do. It doesn't really matter in some universal sense that what they interpret is, quote unquote, wrong from your perspective. In their reality, you're an evil person, right? Um, and so when you can write people in the in this book, like in Anar Karnina, the, the, there's ebbs and flows of how much you, this is another thing I love. The more you get to know people, the more it ebbs and flows on how much you like or dislike them or how you feel towards mm -hmm. them. Like you start liking mm -hmm. one person and then you really dislike them. And then you kind of like yeah. have real empathy and love for them. And then you're really like angry at them. It ebbs and flows as they make different decisions that leads them down different yeah. paths. It never stays the same. You never feel one, one singular thing about somebody, right? And even I, I'll tell you, like with a character like Levin, one interesting thing is, I, I mean, th those characters are all so rich and multifaceted that I'm sure that, I mean, I know for a fact that people will love and hate drastically different things about them different yeah right? so i'm telling you you and i we'd be like laughing at stepping out cartage and thinking what a dope dude who doesn't care many many husbands would vicariously you know like him in the book because like ah, i wish i was that much of yeah. an asshole just enjoying myself yeah. but i i'm pretty sure that most you know, wives reading that book would, from the get-go, really dislike Stefano Cardic and finding very little charm in him, you know? But, or, or, and also the reason why you like and dislike might change over time. Like Levin, I could easily see one thing that people, a certain type of person would really like in him is how serious he was about his work, right? How much he cared about farming and how much he cared about having his affairs in order. He's one of the more competent people in the book, right? There's all these like higher society bullshit that is going on where they're having meetings where they talk about nothing and they they politic and they chit chat. And, and to him, all this is so fucking soul crushing. He's like, I don't know what these people want. I don't care about any of this, the theatrics of this. I, I just want to do real things, right? I care about real things. And so, I could see a lot of, you know, a certain type of person really admiring that and liking and, you know, connecting with that part. And then later in the book, when something really nice happens to his life, he really lets all of that go for a while at least. And he doesn't care and he lets everything slide. And I could see, like, I didn't really care about that part. But as I was reading it, I thought if somebody really loved that competence part of him at the beginning, he might really hate, hate him, right, or judge him harshly. For letting these things slide uh, at, at this point of the book. Mm. I just fucking love when you have a book like this with so is such depth and breadth that you know you could read this book a hundred times and get completely different experiences from it. And you know a hundred people could read this and if they sat there to talk about it, there would be very different nuggets and tidbits and moments that move them because it's so alive. It's so... It is like life itself, where if we all went through a tragic or a you know incredibly positive or moving experience, there'd be many many different stories, many different types of memories of what happened. Um, that to me, is such powerful art, right? Where art is reflecting life better back to us than anything else that we could think of. Um, it's really really amazing.
I almost wonder if somebody would like Ronsky because I feel like the kind of person that would like Ronsky is the kind of person that wouldn't read a book like that. <laughs> See me judging. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, Ronsky, I'm not surprised that you don't like him. Right. That's not surprising at all. <laughs> yeah. That's interesting. It, it, especially in the beginning of the book. I mean, he also over, I mean, I'll say over time in the book, I liked him more in mm. the beginning. He's just such a like empty vessel. Right. It's yeah. just so empty. Like the, the prince, the I don't know if you're that part, but the father of Kitty is like most accurately just like, he's not saying yeah, in those words. I love <laughs> But that. he basically yeah. says, they're all just bimbos. They're just stupid fucking pretty yeah. boys that are rich and know nothing and have zero character. They're all yeah. just fucking the yeah. same yeah. idiot. I also love the interplay between Kitty's father and yeah. mother. <laughs> yes. It's so delicious. Yeah, yeah. because it's so true. It reflects back yeah. so much true life. In that sense, actually, maybe maybe this is one of the few situations. Maybe there are many, and I'm not aware of it. But this is one dynamic where Tolstoy is actually more one-dimensional. He writes the father mm -hmm. very lovingly and tenderly. Yeah. And the mother yeah. really kind of superficially shallow, unlikable. Now, I have met... And I know I have an aunt and uncle that come to mind immediately. I've known many older couples that from external observation, I would could be like, yeah, that's exactly who they were. You know, the father yeah. is actually right about a lot of these things, but he's just like, uh, lets himself yeah. be pushed to the side. And it's just resent, resentful mumbling. And the mother is like the aggressive you know, manager of, of life and creating all this drama because she's doing things for the wrong reasons. It's kind of anno the annoying mother and the, you know, kind but soft father right that kind of a, a dynamic yeah. is something i recognize in real life but he never bothers to write from an internal point of view from the mother from kitty's mother's wow. side to understand her a little bit better like the fear she has the motivations to make her a bit more kind or at least understandable yeah. and he never he never condemns the father for being, which is the, mm. the number one sin of this kind of father. And I've done this myself as a husband and father, where because you're not winning the battles, you just stop caring and you're just complaining then. Yeah. Well, I told, yeah. and I see this, <laughs> another father that comes to mind immediately. It's always in this, like in the corner, the entire family decides something really stupid. It's like, obvious, this is mm. going to be a bad idea. And then the father's like, I think this is stupid. We shouldn't do this because X, Y, Z reason. And then they are all still wanting to do it. And then they do it. And then this, the, the problem comes up that the father had foreseen. Then everybody goes, oh my God, this problem. Yeah. And the father's like, well, I told you. But he's always in the corner talking yeah. to himself because he is he is given up, right? He's like given yeah. up. That he never puts on trial. He never hints at the fault of the father for knowing better, yeah. but having basically surrendered the driving wheel to the mother. It made me actually like when I read about like Kitty's father, I kind of it made me wonder. Ah, I wonder how Tolstoy's. Marriage yeah. was like, and he, I know he had a lot of kids, yeah, right? Yeah, and say, yeah. ah, ah, maybe there's a deep recognition and also a little bit of, I don't know, blindness on, on the side of seeing, seeing it from the other in side. In this, you can definitely sense a kindness towards the father of Kitty and yeah. not so much kindness towards the mother. Yeah. Now, he could have written her worse. He didn't, right? Even there, even the most one-dimensional or one of the more one-dimensional characters in the book, the mother of Kitty... 
he has not made her a caricature because you could yep. easily write her even more evil or more annoying, not even more annoying. Yeah. Right. This is what you would get in TV shows or in some right. movies right. where it's like the, the stepmother or the, the annoying grandmother or something with a bit more of a caricature. He didn't push it that, that far. He didn't, yeah. right? It's still subtle, but with her, yeah. he's just, you know, she's kind of a, she's kind of a, a petty, slightly superficial, not that wise mother. Yeah. And the father, and how, how is he, I, I, I love the scene where she like calls the, this doctor, oh, yeah. Kitty's in despair. <laughs> and then the result is like, nobody understands what the doctor says, but they have to go on a trip. <laughs> yes. It's like <laughs> the, the father, the entire time is like, what? Kitty, Kitty is upset and is not eating and not looking well because she is heartbroken. And yeah. we're bringing in a doctor, and it's like a pompous yeah. con artist that uh, you know yeah. check you know that that just babbles on, doesn't say anything, but is very important mm -hmm. in his proclamation of what she may or may not have. And the mother is just mm -hmm. like, oh my god, you know. Thankfully, there's this really famous doctor that will now like fix the situation. And now we're going to go on this fucking yeah. trip that we would have gone anyways. Right. Yeah. All this is a big theater to appease the mother. Yeah. Kitty knows it's bullshit. Yeah. She knows I'm just heartbroken. Yeah. The father's like, she's just heartbroken, but the mother needs a doctor yeah. so that her fears are calmed. Yeah. But see, so that's not an uncommon situation, but he doesn't write he lacks the empathy for that mother to write mm -hmm. about how terrifying her fear is for what if my there's something wrong with my daughter. Which yeah. is a, a debilitating fear to mothers that fathers never yeah. quite fully can get to, right? We're always you know, worried about our children, but we're not as scared and afraid as their mothers usually are. And so with the smallest thing, the father's like, ah, it's going to be all right. And the mother is instantly like online researching, calling friends. What is this? Is there something wrong with my child? Um, <clears throat> and from a, from a father's perspective, I, could, I can easily see how I would just want to judge this as like irrationality, right? And just being dumb or wrong. But if you have more empathy, I think you could write that – you could write something that would – make you understand where that terror and fear comes from from the mother. Even if it's irrational, mm -hmm. she cannot control it. Why can't she control right. it? Maybe there's something deeply moving there, but Toso doesn't bother to go there, because, probably because that's one thing that he doesn't care for. Who knows? Who mm. knows, right? Maybe uh, yeah, yeah. It, it, it's hard to attach intentions to uh, somebody like that. Um, but it's one of those few characters where it's just, you know, it, it's a dynamic between... A man and a woman where, for the reader, I think it's very clear who's in the right and who's in the wrong and who should be liked mm -hmm. and who should be somebody that is annoying you a little bit. Um, at least for a father reader, I'd be curious to see if, if there are people that would read those characters totally differently. Um, but yeah, uh, that, that whole charade with the doctor is, is funny. And I, I recognized myself in Kitty's father. Like and and I recognize other older fathers that I've seen, yeah. and I've seen this pattern yeah. so many times. And then I thought, I also fell into this pattern in some areas of life. And then I thought, well, it's easy to blame 
the other side, so to speak, versus to go, <clears throat> these fathers, including myself, you know, did not know how to act in those, bat let's call them battles, and so just threw down their sword and gave up. Right? Just, just yeah. like little children threw down their toys and went to the corner and went like, well, you play whatever you guys want. I don't care. Yeah. Right? Yeah. It's like it's like that that part that you also mentioned in our first conversation where it's like he tried he made a timid attempt to extinguish the fire but it didn't work and then he was kind of like okay whatever and then but, he then he goes angry at the fire and he's like well you then you yeah, burned exactly, down fucking exactly. fire it's your fault right yeah. next time yeah, you're gonna yeah. come and want to talk to me I'm not gonna want to talk to you right yeah yeah it's it's a it's a childish response that is very masculine and manly where I could not get control over this with competence, right? I could not know how or how to this situation for people to listen to me. And so I'll just throw down all the toys and go to the corner and be like, well, then I don't care anymore. That's a very typical pattern I see so many times with fathers, older fathers, when it comes to the raising of their children, right? When you look at, at least in my family circles, a lot of parents, the fathers in their 50s and 60s, they'd be in this, well, I've told you and the children this a million times, but nobody's listening to me. And so I don't care anymore. Right? I'll just, whatever your mother says, you guys do, you're going to do what you guys want to do anyway. And you guys is like the mother and the children. You know, It's such a childish attitude. And it's also very much a, I give up. Right? I don't, I, I've cared and tried in the beginning and because it didn't instantly work the way I thought it should work, I just give up, which points me to the other thing exactly. that I, I, but then I still, I still am able to later say after the thing that I, I told you so was warning you off, right? Yeah. I told you so. That's, that's, uh, yeah, I'll uh, keep that. I'll, I'll be in the right and all you stay in the wrong. This is also one of the quotes that I read in the, the last conversation we had about the book was where Anna's husband, Alexei Alexandrovich, where it says, whatever I'm paraphrasing, all the competence and all the, you know, meticulousness with which he was in all the like business-like and statesman affair-like approach that he was having so much success with in his career, he could not understand how that same approach was insane. Taking the same approach with his wife was so insane, right? Like this is such a typical, like the, 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 man or the husband in this case who had excelled in politics and in business by being a certain rational way was trying the exact same way in applying to all the problems of his marriage and was confused why that was totally insane right and not working at all he's not producing the results he was expecting at all yeah and even anna um, when she's like, she comes back and she's in this like conflicted bubble of love, right? Where she's now like, she already loves Ronsky, but she doesn't really admit it. And then she's like going back and forth about it internally. And she's like talking to herself, oh, this is just a silly thing that happens to women in social circles. But then also she feels like this is the only thing that matters, right? And then her husband picks up at the at the train station in the midst of a busy day, tries to show her some warmth, even though he has a meeting that he has to attend, and, you know, and then and uh, then he's talking to her, and then she's like 
listening to the footsteps of Vronsky walking away, not listening mm-hmm. to us. And it's like so heartbreaking. <laughs> and you can feel like, and she's the first thing when she sees her husband, it's like, why his ears so big? Oh my God. And she sees all these flaws yep. <laughs> suddenly. Yep. Right? And then later she even sees the sun. Yes. And even with the sun. Oh my God. That was so powerful. <laughs> so... But he sees her son and even her yes. son is not as lovely as he remembered, yeah. as she remembered yeah. him. Yeah. 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 That shit. You see, this is what. So tough because you can see like in her heart, that's really how she feels. Right? She, she, but. On the other, from both sides, you see, oh, my God, this is so painful. Yeah, you see, in the moment of falling in love, how that emotion is shading things. And, like, for all intents and purposes, she was, like, such a loving mother to her son. And it was where she attached all her love because she was not really in love with her husband. And then she falls in love with another man. And for a moment, it's like she's turned into a little girl and she just can't quite love and care for even her son anymore the same way, right? At least in those moments. And this is completely internal, right? Nobody knows or sees anything at that point yet. And this is something that I loved about the um, can never – I can never um, say his name correctly, but the – yeah, Chuck Pala, Palaniuk, oh, yeah. the author of Fight uh-huh. Club, right? When I saw his interview with Joe Rogan, where he would describe these, like finding these moments where we as humans have despicable thoughts or emotions that we would mm-hmm. never speak out. And it's maybe just a moment and it leaves. Yeah. And like finding the humanity in those moments and like writing them out or telling these stories or shining a light on that. Um <clears throat> where he was t- t- talking about his, I think his mother, who was sick for a long time and he loved really dearly and had a very close relationship with, and then hearing the news that his mother had died. And this mix of emotion mm. where on the one hand he I'm was relieved. you know, in pain, but on the other he was relieved. And it was not yeah. a relief because he was thinking, oh, finally. Yeah, it was, a yeah, it was not, oh, finally yeah. she's happy. It was yeah. a relief of, finally I don't yeah. have to worry about this. I don't have to go there and visit her and see her in this space. Like, I am freed of the burden of having to worry and care yeah. for my sick old mother, right? Yeah. This was also in, in Kafka, right? In, in the metamorphosis. Yeah. Like, so painful and stretched out. It's like, oh my God. Yeah, where people... But also so true. The family, you know, that was, again, like in, Kaf- in Kafka's uh, metamorphosis, again, nobody is necessarily a bad person. In that now I could right. see people reading that book right. and hating the family. I could see them hating the sister, mm-hmm. right? Um, some people I could see hating him, right, for being such a coward the entire time, basically. But at no time is there clearly somebody at fault or wrong. But the, the beautiful thing is this: when you care, when you have to care for somebody <clears throat> over yeah. a period of time, it becomes a burden. And then inevitably, yeah. no matter how much you love that person, no matter how good of a person you are, at some point yeah. you'll turn to some dark thoughts and feelings towards that yeah. person, right? Yeah. That is tr- truly what it means to be human. But mm-hmm. many of these feelings and emotions, because we find them so despicable, we never would speak out. Yeah, it, and they don't fit the social yeah. narrative, yeah. right? It's, you know. Yeah, you, you, you... And I think 
even more so than people realizing that they feel this way and not saying it, I think oftentimes these moments, these thoughts are thoughts that are either so quickly suppressed or so strongly, you know, hidden from your own consciousness that people don't even like a day later wouldn't even be able to say I had a bit mm -hmm. of relief in that moment because that mm -hmm. feeling felt weird. And so the thought ran to something else, right? Like whatever, yeah. opened the yeah. television, ate some chocolate, talked to somebody else. Like we, we run away from these thoughts and feelings and then we ourselves yeah. are not pregnant with them and going, oh, I don't know where to deliver this thought because people would judge me. I think there's some of that, but more so this is the 20%, 80% of these more darker thoughts, more shadow sides of us, I think we're not courageous enough to look in the eye to even know they existed or they're present in us in the moment. And then when somebody would want to talk to us about how did it feel when you know your mother died or whatever, we would think we are speaking honestly when we told them about all our pain and all our suffering, and we would never dare to think about saying anything else because in our memory we've already decided to forget that. We don't know that anymore uh, i think that's the kind of it's still there but it requires some digging to get to and even the digging itself is such an unpleasant task that it's like why even you, you don't do it unless you have a some specific motivation but it's at right? that level where we're with a shovel and we look at the other person yeah. and we look over at that corner of the 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 you know the field or whatever where the skeleton is 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 buried and we don't think oh I need to throw away the shovel and he doesn't need to know about the skeleton that I have we're not at that level it's a mm -hmm. we, we talk to them about the weather we look at the shovel once in a while we glance at that spot but we never think mm -hmm. anything we just glance yep. at these yep. at the shovel and at yep. the spot and then we talk about things and then we go back to the house and we put yep. away the shovel and the next day in our memory there was never a shovel or a spot that we were looking at it's just still mm -hmm. just a slight layer now all it takes is the right level of courage to wake up and see the shovel in our hands and go why do i have a shovel oh shit what's that spot over there fuck i think there's something dark do I have the courage to uncover this in front of my friend and myself? But that, like bringing that up from the lower levels of consciousness or awareness, that thing requires a level of courage that most of the time we don't have. So our cowardice are keeping our thoughts basically or keeping those realizations just a layer a level below our eyesight and cool. yeah just like just yeah. pushing them down just below our eyesight so we look and we're like mm -hmm. i have a weird feeling but i i, I don't see it it's mm -hmm. like sometimes i've had mm -hmm. this experience many times where um you know uh, my mother would have you know new shoes or new earrings or something and i my eyes would go there a number of times would look at this thing that's new but my mind wouldn't think, are these new earrings? And then a couple of hours later, my mother would be like, ah, I just bought new earrings. And I'd go, damn it. I, I was keep looking at your earrings. So I noticed it. But it was not yet at a level where it penetrated my thoughts to go, are these new earrings? Should I ask? Should I say something? Mm. It's that sort of a thing where it's there. You see it. But not yet. It is not a fully formed aware thought. Hey. 
There's a skeleton there. There's a deep, there's a conflicting thought, an emotion that I don't want to feel. And so we, we're just like, look at people, look at our shovels, and we just don't connect the dots. Um, but it's beautiful when any time we're able to notice and recognize our shadow side and then use the shovel to bring it up from the ground and deal with it and have empathy and humanity towards it, not judge ourselves, not use it as punishment, not use it for guilt or shame, but just look at it and understand, hey, this is part of the experience of being a human. Maybe I do feel relief that this person that I love so much died, right? And maybe that doesn't make me a terrible person. Maybe that doesn't take away any of the love I have and had for this person. Maybe it's just complicated to be a human and maybe it's okay to feel weird thoughts. It doesn't mean I'm going to, like, I can feel that moment of relief and understand that there's a part of me that is relieved and have tremendous sadness and live that fully and it's not a contradiction, right? The existence of one thing does not negate the other. And I think oftentimes we do believe or we have a fear in ourselves that if one exists, the other isn't true or it overshadows the other. I cannot have a bad thought about this situation and still be a good person. I cannot be relieved this person died and still feel grief for their death, right? That seems like it's contradicting yeah. itself. It's, yeah. not, it's either one or the other. So if I feel relief, I am not grieving, which means I didn't love them, which means I'm a terrible blah, 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 whatever the, the chain is that our thoughts fall into. Um, but the truth is, we're almost always in some inner conflict, in some conflicting thoughts. Mm -hmm. uh, if not in our thoughts, then in our emotions. If not in our emotions, then in some of our actions. And mostly in all three. And seeing all of it and having empathy for all of it and then negotiating, dealing with it, right? Coming back to this idea of that the self as a village of characters, right? Where you're in a room of yeah. different conflicting things and you talk to all of them and you understand them and then you lead them down a path versus being a shameful part of your village or for part of people in the village and blaming them and fighting with them and creating conflict and all that. Um, that's a, it's a tall order. That's a, a big task that, it's a tricky place to get to or to travel to, but so rewarding. Um, and the greatest artists that we've known in one way or another are people that have been able to go to the brightest and darkest spot of the human soul and to express that more boldly and more beautifully than yeah. we're able to. It's typically not a happy-go-lucky oblongski. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's not. That's not. It's not all of life. But I think that art. One of the beautiful things of art is that it can talk about these things and infuse them with beauty. Mm -hmm. Even the darkest side of somebody, if you describe it artfully enough, honestly enough, creatively enough, you've now made something really despicable part of it because it's life. Yeah. It is beautiful. And it's something that when you take art away from us to express those parts of life and living, it's very hard to infuse mm. these situations with beauty. Yeah. If I just describe, here's a person, and he did the selfish thing, and here's his actions. Yeah. If I just rationally go through what he did, there's, there's no beauty in there. There's very little humanity in there. Yeah. Um, but if yeah. I tell the story yeah. the way that 
great artists are able to tell. It doesn't matter if it's music, if it's writing in a poem or a painting. Great art is able to infuse all of life, even the most shadowy, the darkest spots, infuse them with beauty because they are part of life and all of life is beautiful. And so there's something more true in art in that way than we're able to find in, you know, in, in I don't know what to call it, like non-art, I don't know, science, it's not that, but in... Yeah, it's like in, in, in fiction, there's more truth than in yeah, fiction. Yeah, yeah there is. Yeah. Like you could write uh, philosophy books and psychology books um, and find a right. lot less truth in them than reading a it's great like novel. A, a legal breakdown of a yeah. case. Yeah, 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 yeah. You have all the data and the, you know, at 7.15, Stepan went to, right? you have all that. Yeah, it's like, it's like looking oh. at life at source quote level, right? Now, mm. you might have a great time playing World of Warcraft as a video game, but if I sit you in front of the pure source source code, even if that's really what happens and how this game works, mm. there's no joy or beauty in that, right? You'll sit there and you don't understand anything, yeah. or even if you did no programming, it might be interesting but there's no joy in beauty versus when you mm. get to play the game. And many times in philosophy, in science, in, in psychology, in so sociology, when we, in, in history, when we describe just the mere fact and the things and this happened, this and this is how people are and this, you know, the brain functions this way and that's why we sometimes feel these things when we do these things and that and that and that. It's the source code, right? We're trying to get to the source code of life to understand exactly what line of code is producing, what kind of response and result and how do we explain everything. But the art turns it or, or reflects back real life in to us back in a way that doesn't lose its beauty and its mystery and its magic. Um, like it's so hard. Like I still read nonfiction books Um but the difference is so even nonfiction books that are really well, like when they're really well written and there's some interesting stories in them, I still enjoy them. But there's no comparison. The way, like I've, I've read hundreds of books about psychology, right? Mm -hmm. Hundreds and hundreds of books. I definitely have a PhD mm -hmm. in psychology in terms of just number of books I read about fucking the mind and yeah. all the different, like I've read a lot about this topic. This topic has interested me for 20 years now. None of these books, I've had a lot of aha moments. Oh, wow, this is amazing. But nothing compared to like reading a book like Anar Karenina, where mm -hmm. there's such on every page, such richness of life and human struggle and motivation and that there's so much reflection that I have to go through and so much, so many insightful moments and so much pleasure and joy like to me these great books have they're telling us or they're showing us the truth of who we are and why we are the way we are in so much more beautiful ways and and true ways in some yeah. ways so i'm getting yeah. so much out of I find these like books. these yeah i find like these nonfiction books they often give you like a framework that gives you a simplified way of thinking about something or looking at something, right? That can be very useful. But then you read something like this uh, and it's like, well, this was nice, but it's not that simple. <laughs> yeah, yeah. All right, I got to run.